0: Free. And Lord, give to us a passion for your Word, that we may grow and walk in all your ways. On behalf of Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. You'll remain standing, take your Bibles, and turn once again to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. I think that you're, while you're turning there, I think that you're all very much aware that the proper response to the Word of God for a believer is obedience. The hearing of the Word must be followed by obedience. I mean, truly accepting God's Word logically means Doing it. And this is the point James is making in our text this morning. So if you'll follow along as I read our text, James chapter 1, verses 22 through 27, beginning now in verse 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. May the Lord bless this reading and the teaching of his word. You may be seated. As you'll remember, the mention of the word of truth in their regeneration in verse 18 turned James' thoughts in verses 19 to 27 to urging his readers now to live according to this word that brought them life. I mean, his point is now that you've been born again by the transforming power of God's word, you must live according to the word, allowing it to continue its divine work in and through your lives. But of course, this doesn't happen apart from the believer's own sincere determination and effort. And in verses 19 to 21, James says it begins with humbly receiving God's Word. That's what we looked at last week. A call to the Christian to humbly receive the truth of God's Word. But it doesn't stop with that. Secondly, it must be acted upon. We must actually do God's Word. It must be heard And obeyed if it's ever to have any effect in our lives. And this is what James deals with in verses 22 to 27. The fact that we must be doers of God's word. And these verses are really the very heart of this epistle. Because the dominant theme of James is that genuine faith must be and will be evident in the life True hearing and receiving must result in obedience because genuine faith, saving faith, is an active faith. It's an obedient faith, a faith that works practically in one's life. So it affects the way you live. It 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 behaves in a certain way. Obedience to the Word is the most basic spiritual requirement and is the common denominator for all true believers. If someone is a genuine believer, he or she will desire to obey God's Word. Hearing the Word and not doing it leads to deception. But hearing the Word and doing it, James will tell us, leads to blessing. And we can break down this passage under three headings. In verse 22, James gives us a command. In verses 23 to 25, he gives us an illustration And then in verses 26 and 27, he gives us an application. And so having been born again through the Word and having humbly received the Word, James now says in verse 22, if you'll notice, but be doers of the Word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Now it's worth noting that James did not simply say, do the Word. He said, be doers of the Word. And you say, this is significant why Well, the fact that James calls believers to be doers emphasizes the kind of person the Christian is to be, not just some act that he is to perform. James is telling us that Christians are to be people whose very lives are dedicated not only to hearing God's Word, but to obeying it, to living it out. And the tense this is written in indicates it's a continuing duty. So this is a lifelong process. We will never reach a point where it's okay to slack up in our obedience. I mean, we must never stop. We we must continually be doers of the Word. And this was not a a new idea to any of James' Jewish readers, because the Old Testament expressed the importance of doing all that that God's law required. I Take, for example, Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. Why? That we may do all the words of this law. Jesus taught the same truth in the New Testament in Luke eleven twenty eight. 28. He said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it or obey it. Those are the ones that are blessed, Jesus says, those who obey my word. So James is telling us believers must be doers of the Word. You see, there's a real danger that some Christians will think that they are making progress in the Christian life because they go through a regular routine of Bible reading and, and listening to preaching. You know, thinking that merely listening to the Word of God is sufficient to fulfill our obligation as believers. You know, this is the danger that, that James is warning us about. The Christian life is not only passive, it's active. We must be doers of the word, always applying in our lives what we have heard. Stuart Briscoe, who uh, is a pastor, was, was teaching the principles of Bible study. And he showed how to pick out the promises and the commands in Scripture and what to do with them. And then finally, he reviewed and asked this question. Now he said, What do you do with the commands? And a little old lady seated in the front raised her hand and she said, I underline them in blue. (laughs) Well, underlining the Bible's commands in blue, you know, makes for a colorful Bible. But the point of the commands of Scripture is that we obey them. The key issue is not what is preached or written, but what is done. And unfortunately, there are many people in evangelical churches who have their heads and their notebooks filled with information from the Bible, but they do not obey what the Bible says. Obedience should always be the bottom line of our Bible reading and study and our listening to the Word of God preached. Because to study the Word without obeying the Word short-circuits God's purpose in giving it. And Paul said in 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Why? That the man of God might be complete, equipped for every good work that he might be equipped to obey the Word of God. And so James does not want us to become professionals at hearing the Bible taught while all the while failing to apply it in our lives. And that's why he says, But be doers of the Word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. The Greek word translated hearers was a common term used for those who sat passively in an audience and listened to a singer or a lecturer, but who were not disciples of the lecturer. They were hearers who in life didn't follow the instructions given. We would call them auditors. We would use the term to describe students who audit a class. You know, they're merely hearers of the instruction. They sign up for the class, pay a nominal auditor's fee, and then they sit through the lectures. But beyond that, uh, everything is optional. Some may take notes, some might read the textbook, but that's optional. Auditors don't write papers or take tests. They're, they're not in it for course credit because they're, they're merely hearers of the instruction, not doers. In contrast, James says the Christian life is one not only of hearing, but of doing. And I can tell you that after three decades of pastoral ministry, I am convinced that there are many auditors of the Word in the church. And if all who are auditors of the Word of God on Sunday were put into practice during the week... Uh, what they learned on Sunday, what a difference that would make in their lives. What a difference that would make in their marriages, their families, their children, the church, and the culture. I mean, many people in church today approach spiritual truth with an auditor's mentality, receiving God's Word only passively. And they just keep receiving and keep receiving and keep receiving, and they get really big, fat theological heads. But there's no doing. James says those who merely hear the Word without acting on it are, look at verse 22. They're deceiving themselves. Deceiving themselves. The word deceiving literally means to reason beside the point, to reason alongside. I mean, think about it as reasoning with words alongside or against the truth. It speaks of misleading. It depicts skewed logic, and it primarily means to reason falsely, and so to deceive by false reasoning. The MacArthur Study Bible had a great note on this. It says, this word was used in mathematics to refer to a miscalculation. He said, professing Christians who are content with only hearing the word have made a serious spiritual miscalculation. That's exactly right. And this is in the present tense, which indicates they're continually deceiving themselves by false reasoning. You see, any response to the word of God that does not include obedience is self deception. And that is the worst kind of deception. And so the person who's content to hear and not obey is horribly, horribly deceived. And to be in this state of spiritual deception is to be in a very dangerous place. And I say that because the basic longing and desire of a true believer is to do God's will. To walk in obedience to his word. And people can say what they want, but in the long run, their behavior is proof of either their salvation or of their lostness. John said in 1 John 3.10, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother." I mean, the doer of the word puts into practice, uh, the doer puts the word into practice in his life. I mean, Jesus said, you are my friends if what? You do what I command you. He said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He also said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my word. Echoing uh, that basic truth, the Apostle John writes in 1 John 2, verses 3 and 4, And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep or if we obey his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, John said, and the truth is not in him. So this is serious stuff. If a profession of faith in Christ does not result in a changed life that hungers and thirsts for God's word and desires to obey that word, then the profession is only that. It's a mere profession. And that is extremely frightening. Because Jesus said this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And Jesus does not dispute the fact that they did those things, and that's a very impressive list. But he did say, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus also said in Luke 6, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? I mean, that's a great contradiction, isn't it? To call him Lord and then not do what he tells us? And he continued, Everyone who comes to me and hears my word and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But, he said, the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, it immediately fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Those who have trusted Christ alone for salvation obey Him. And to think any differently is to live in deception. To say that I have trusted Christ and then to live contrary to Christ is to deceive yourself. James says you're you're blind to your true spiritual condition if you claim that you've heard and received God's word, yet you fail to act on it. He says you're doing nothing but deceiving yourself. The true believer, the doer, obeys the Word. He, he puts it into practice. And look, having said that, I also want to say that, that no Christian obeys perfectly. We're not talking about, you know, some kind of sinless perfection. No Christian obeys perfectly. But at the same time, that's not an excuse to not obey. That's not an excuse to abuse grace. So no Christian obeys perfectly, but every Christian certainly has a desire to obey God. And every Christian is is certainly making every effort to do so. And they are seriously grieved when they fail, which is often at times. But I'm convinced that a lot of people in the church listen to the word week after week after week. And yet, it has not been implanted in their heart. Because it's evident in their lives. Because they're not acting on it. They're not living it. Sure, they act on the things that they agree with. Things that agree with their lifestyle. Or they act when it's convenient to obey. But when the Word of God confronts, challenges, convicts, or or tries to change them, they put it aside and forget it, never putting it into action. And if this describes your life, you need to pay very careful attention to James. Because this is not the Christian life. In the Christian life, the Word is implanted in your heart, and you receive humbly, and and you receive it humbly and, and constantly, and by the grace and strength that God supplies, you obey it. That's the Christian life. The life that is doing what the Word of God says. And that means in every area of your life. Your personal life, your marriage, with your children, your finances, your job, your business. Let me read you what one man wrote. He said, as a pastor, one of the phrases that most concerns me when someone is when someone says, I just need to be willing to obey God's word, particularly when it calls me to do something radical in my life or culture. I just need to be willing. That's enough. Based on James 1, he says, I want to warn you that this mindset is extremely deceptive. Now, there's a grain of truth here. For Psalm 51.17 says, You will not despise a broken and humbled heart. I mean, God desires a willing heart just as God desires a listening heart, a heart that trembles at His Word. But if you listen and you don't do anything, you've not really listened. And if you're willing but don't do anything, you're not really willing. Don't be willing to obey the Word Obey the Word, because anything less is self-deception. And so James exhorts us to be doers of the Word and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. You know, someone might say, oh man, I spent an hour this morning reading the Bible and I can remember what I read. It was just a sweet, uninterrupted time. Or, man, I listened to to two sermons on podcasts this morning. It was just awesome. And James would say, well, that's great. But now what about obeying the word you read or the word you heard? Have you actually changed your mind so that what you learned in the word you now hold to be true and you're making the necessary changes? Have you and are you redirecting your imagination and your eyes and your thoughts so as to live according to the standards of the Word? Are your relationships different as the Word instructed you they should be? And he could go on and on and on. We must be doers of the Word. Doers. The Pharisees were those, the scribes and the Pharisees were those who were always learning, always learning. But the Bible said they were never coming to a knowledge of the truth. We must be doers of the word in every area of our life. You see, loved ones, the word of God is not meant to make us smarter sinners, but to make us more like Christ. And even though the amount of time we're in the Word is very important, you know what's even more important? You know what's even more important and more vital for our spiritual health and well-being? It's how much of the Word is actually in us, renewing and transforming our mind as demonstrated by our changed behavior. Not just hearing, but doing. A lot of people can talk a really good game but it's not a reality in their life and it's evident. And now in verses 23 to 25 James illustrates what he said about hearing and doing the word. First in verses 23 and 24 he gives an illustration of the hearer only. Look at verse 23. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. So if you're a hearer of the Word, but you then don't follow, what's, uh, don't follow that with being a doer of the Word, James says this is what you are. This is what you're like. You're, you're like a man who looks intently. And the word translated here, looks intently, means to observe or consider carefully and attentively. It means to perceive clearly, to be fully aware uh, of through thoughtful viewing. It means to take note of so the man who is the hearer only looks intently. He, he clearly sees and, and takes note of his natural face. And literally, it's the face of his birth or his existence, which obviously refers to his natural appearance. And so he intently looks at his face and clearly sees his natural appearance. Nothing escapes his notice. And the point is that this man did not just make a passing glance. Rather, he took note of what he saw. And remember, ancient mirrors weren't like the mirrors we have today. They weren't like those magnifiers, you know, with the lights around it the ladies used to put on their makeup. I mean, those things are scary. (laughs) But mirrors in that day weren't like today's glass mirrors. Rather, mirrors in that day were were polished metal, brass, copper, tin, or sometimes even silver and gold. But it did enable someone to get a good look at at themselves. And so the man clearly sees his, his face. He sees his nose, his eyes, his whiskers, wrinkles. He sees his blemishes. He sees everything. And the longer he looks, the more he sees. I mean, as one man said, the mirror, like the proverbial camera, does not lie. And the implication is that his looking in the mirror revealed something that needed attention. And maybe he had toothpaste on his face or, or food in his beard or perhaps his hair needed to be combed or his nose hairs trimmed or something. I mean, whatever. But he was fully aware that something needed attention. So he looks intently at his face, fully recognizing that something needed attention. And so what does he do? Does he deal with the problem? No, not at all. Look at verse 24. James says, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. It's like, really? I mean, are you kidding me? The guy sees the issue and and sees what needs to be done and then he just goes on his merry way immediately forgetting what he saw? Forgetting what he was like? And this word forget means to seemingly forget Lose remembrance, but it's also translated neglect. Neglect. So he immediately forgot, he neglected what the mirror revealed. It had no effect on his appearance. You say, well, how foolish is that? Well, exactly. That's James' point. The person who hears God's Word but doesn't do it is just as foolish. And in James, the mirror is God's Word which gives to those who intently look into it a, a clear and complete picture of themselves. It gives a clear picture of who and what we actually are. It shows us what needs to be cleansed and changed and, and made right in our lives just as a mirror does with our body. But the man who only hears the word and and doesn't do it is like the man who looks into the mirror, sees exactly what's wrong, but does absolutely nothing about it. Instead, he goes away and forgets or neglects what he saw, so his looking was useless. So the word had no lasting or abiding influence on him, except that the spiritual consequences are immeasurably worse than simply forgetting what you look like. It's important we understand that James is not describing a man with a poor memory. Remember, this word forget means to seemingly lose remembrance or to neglect. So James is not describing a man with a poor memory, but rather a man with poor priorities. He forgets what he saw in the mirror because he doesn't regard it as very important. The truths of God's Word, the things of God are are interesting and nice, but this guy has a career to pursue. He's got money to make. He's got hobbies and toys that are his passion on his days off. And so he forgets, he neglects what God's Word says about his sins because really it just isn't all that important compared to all these other priorities in his life. And so the Word of God has no lasting effect on his life. I'm afraid there's a lot of useless looking in our churches. And the Word of God, like the mirror, does its work. We look into it. It tells us the truth about ourselves and our situation and our marriages and our families and our children. And then the responsibility rests squarely on us. Are we going to correct the problems? Or are we going to ignore them? Are we going to act on the Word of God? Or are we merely going to walk away? I mean, what does the Word of God reveal to you when you look into it? Does it tell you that your prayer life is not what it ought to be? Well, what are you going to do? Are you going to begin to pray as you should? Are you just going to neglect it and go on your way? Does it tell you that you have bitterness and resentment towards a brother or sister in Christ? What are you going to do? Does it tell you that you're not as diligent as you should be uh, about your study of God's Word? Does it tell you that you're not as faithful in attending worship as you should be? Does it tell you that many other things uh, with regard to the things of God and the church are, are not what they should be? Does it tell you that your love for Christ has grown cold? How are you going to respond? The Word of God reveals these things to us. So are you going to go on as you have been? Or are you going to take action? And this is what the Word of God commands us to do. Take action. Be a doer of the Word. Apply it in your life. Begin to deal with those things that it's revealed. Quit thinking that your life is going to change if you just keep acquiring more knowledge. Most of the issues in our lives could be solved with repentance, not more knowledge. Repenting and being a doer of the Word. But that's too difficult. Listen, there is nothing more urgent before us than addressing those matters in our lives which the Word of God has called to our attention. But how many people neglect and even refuse to do so? How many hear and do not do? How many of us listen to the word when we come together for corporate worship? Then we're like this fool in verses 23 and 24. We listen and leave, and then by lunch or perhaps by dinner, it's all gone. What good is that? It is of no effect. Foolish, it's more than foolish. Spiritually, it is catastrophic. The truth is, unless the word has made a change in our lives, it has not really entered our lives. I mean, Lord, deliver us from this delusion that merely hearing and accumulating knowledge from your word is enough. And now in verse 25, we have the doer of the word. Look at verse 25. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. And so in contrast to the one who is only a hearer, uh, the man who looks, and this word looks means to stoop or to bend beside in order to look carefully, closely, or, or seriously into a thing. The idea conveyed by this word is to bend down and and look into in order to see an object more clearly or or to know it better, to see something exactly and and so to recognize. James says this man has such an intense interest in the word that he stops, he bends over as it were in order to take a closer, deeper look into the mirror of God's word. And this careful examination is not occasional but habitual. James says he perseveres or he continues in it. So this man is gripped by what he sees and and he keeps on looking into the mirror of God's Word which James refers to here as the perfect law, the law of liberty. Now he's already described the Word of God as the Word of truth in verse 18. The implanted Word in verse 21 simply as the word in verse 22, figuratively now as, as a mirror in verse 23, and now he describes it as the perfect law, the law of liberty or the law of freedom. Why does he describe God's word in this way? God's Word is a law because it was given by God as a standard for the express purpose of guiding and regulating our conduct. It is perfect because it was given by God Himself. God who is perfect cannot produce anything that is not perfect. Therefore, Scripture cannot be improved. Scripture is inerrant, sufficient, and comprehensive. It, it encompasses all of God's revealed Word. And by referring to it as the law of liberty or the law of freedom, James is focusing on its redemptive power in freeing believers from the bondage of sin and then freeing them to live a life of righteous obedience. It gives freedom to those who bring themselves under its authority. In fact, those who live according to God's word are truly free. I mean, Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will what? Set you free. And then a couple of verses later, he said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. God's word is often thought of by some as bringing bondage, but in reality, it brings great freedom. It has set us free from the penalty of sin and the power of sin. It has set us free from the law of sin and death to serve God, not out of fear or a mere sense of duty, but out of gratitude and love. And one day it's going to free us from this world and its corruption, from our fallenness, from our flesh, from temptation and from the curses of sin, death and hell. In other words, someday it's going to set us free from the very presence of sin. But Satan works very hard to depict sin as the greatest freedom and God's Word as the greatest bondage. But just the reverse is true. Only those who live in obedience to God's Word are truly free. As one of the old Puritans said, obedience is the greatest freedom and sin the greatest bondage. And so in contrast to the one who hears and does not do, This man looks intently into the Word of God. He gives careful attention to the Scriptures, the the perfect law of freedom. And James says he perseveres. He continues to do so. And listen, as he gazes into the mirror of God's Word, it reveals his heart. And he sees himself as he really is. He not only sees that he's a sinner, but he sees the depth of his sin. He sees that there's no part of himself which is not tainted with sin. And his self-knowledge grows deeper and he knows that in his natural self, apart from God, no good thing dwells. He recognizes what a wretched man I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? But he also sees the reflection of a holy, transcendent God who has shown in his heart to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And he sees God's love and His mercy and His grace and, and he sees himself as God sees him as his spiritually reborn child who is becoming more and more like his beloved son. And he recognizes that God has set him free from the bondage of sin and death to do as he ought to live for Christ in obedience to God's Word. And instead of hearing and forgetting, instead of hearing this and neglecting this, he goes and he does it. He's a doer of the Word. He thinks deeply, he obeys willingly, he responds positively, and he seeks to live by the principles of God's Word. And he keeps, he keeps looking and doing and looking and doing and looking and doing, not perfectly, but that is the desire and the direction of his life. And as a result, James says at the end of verse 25, notice, he will be what? Blessed. He will be blessed in his doing. Notice the man is not said to be blessed automatically in proportion to the amount of biblical knowledge he accumulates. The blessing comes with his obedience to what God has revealed to him. And this is a truth which we see throughout the Scriptures. The psalmist said in Psalm 1911, speaking of God's Word, Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward Psalm one hundred and nineteen, verse two: Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. Again, Jesus said in Luke eleven twenty eight: Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Revelation twenty two seven: Jesus said, and behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. You see, the Christian comes to the Word of God with an open, willing heart and, and comes from it with a submissive, obedient heart. And that, that, that brother or that sister, they are the ones who will be blessed. And the Bible doesn't say exactly how they'll be blessed, but they'll be blessed. They will be the ones who are fulfilled. But notice that it says he will be blessed in his doings. That's an important phrase. Because it tells us that the blessing does not come after obedience, but during it. The blessing is part of it. He's telling us the very act of obedience carries in itself a great blessing. As one man said in the mystery, mysterious chemistry of God's mercy... A man's very obedience is made a blessing to him. And so how many blessings have we lost or not received because we're not being doers of the word? It is the doing of God's word that is the key to blessing and fulfillment. Jesus said in John thirteen seventeen, If you know these things, blessed are you, If you do them. If you do them. Loved ones, you want to be blessed? Anybody here not want to be blessed? Do you want to be blessed? And James tells us, be a doer of the word. Be a doer of the word. Live according to the word of God. Don't sit in church week after week and resist the word of God. now in verses 26 to 27, James makes an application. You know, moving away from the analogy of the mirror, James wants to make clear that the doer of the word is not simply someone who is involved in religious activity. James gives us three things, three practices that mark the life of, a, of the true believer, the, uh, those who are actually living out the word of God. Those who are are truly hearers and doers of the word, number one, control their tongue. Number two, they show compassion to those in need. And number three, they manifest personal purity. Verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. The word religious and religion refer to Uh, external religious rituals involved in in public worship. And these words are infrequently used in the New Testament. By contrast, the word most commonly used in the New Testament for genuine God-honoring, God-pleasing worship has the basic meaning of godliness and holiness. James uses... uh, These words referring to outward religious ceremonies here because he is describing the man or the woman who prides themselves in all of their religious activities which they believe make them doers of the word. But you see, true religion, genuine acts of God-honoring worship that are acceptable to God are, are so much more than mere outward expressions of worship. And as Jesus said, all of that can take place. All kinds of outward forms of worship can take place. But our hearts can still be far from Him. And we can simply be deceiving our own hearts. You see, such things as attending church services and activities, doing volunteer work, following various rituals and ceremonies, saying prayers, reading the Bible, even having the right theology have absolutely no spiritual value in themselves apart from true saving faith. And trusting in those things to please God and receive His blessing are deceptive and worthless. James says this person deceives himself. Literally, he misleads or seduces his own heart because all of those religious activities are as futile as pagan idolatry unless the heart is right with God. James' point in verse 26 is that those who are truly hearers and doers of the word You know, those who are living out the Word of God, they control their tongue. But an unbelieving heart will eventually be exposed by corrupt, unholy speech. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. This word uh, bridle tells us how James uh, regards the tongue. It's like a powerful, rearing horse that needs to be restrained. It needs to be kept on a tight rein. You know, kept in check. Controlled. And failure to do this is evidence of a lack of divine grace in the heart. One commentator said, if you've ever sat on a 1,500-pound are on, on 1,500 pounds of restless bone and muscle and then hung on at, at full gallop. You have the idea. There are actually people who consider themselves religious. They're very proper in their worship, but who have galloping tongues and thus are in a state of perpetual self-deception. In fact, all their religious worship is worthless and exercise in futility. And Jesus himself explained this in no uncertain terms in a heated exchange he had with the Pharisees. And he said to them in Matthew 12, verses 33 and 34 Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit, you brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You see, your tongue will inevitably reveal what is on the inside. What is on the inside will ultimately come out, and this is especially true under stress. And James is going to deal with, with the tongue at some length later, but suffice it to say, terrible sins spew from an unbi- unbridled, uncontrolled tongue. All kinds of filth. You know, profanity, lying, gossip, which someone has defined as the art of confessing other sins. <laughs> Slander. Boasting the worst of which is religious boasting, etc. And and there's nothing worse than a slanderous, carping, critical, judgmental tongue. And how easy it is for us to fall into this trap. I mean, all all these sins, you know, these, uh, these respectable sins spew from the unbridled tongue. And, and the habitual practice of such things indicates a heart that is not right with God. Because again, the tongue reveals what is in the heart. And I want to emphasize that James is talking about what is habitually true of someone. James does not mean that those who on occasion fall into this sin, have a worthless religion because all believers are guilty at times. But he is saying that if anyone's tongue is habitually unbridled, even though he attends church regularly, has Bible knowledge, prays, gives, and though he considers himself to be religious, James says he deceives himself and his religion is absolutely worthless. It's not because it's not a reality in here. It's not a reality in the heart. And that word worthless means empty. It means devoid of significance, point, or benefit. You see, our speech is a reflection of what is inside of us. And with that in mind, think about things you've said perhaps even recently. And what does that say about you? Our speech is a reflection of what is inside of us. And a religion that doesn't transform the heart and thereby bridle the tongue is totally worthless. It's without point or benefit in God's sight. I read a story of John Wesley who was preaching once and he noticed a lady in the audience who was known for her critical attitude. And all through the service she sat and stared at his new tie. And when the meeting ended, she came up to him and said very sharply, Mr. Wesley, the strings on your bow tie are much too long and it's an offense to me. (laughs) True story. And he asked if any of the ladies present happened to have a pair of scissors in their purse. And when the scissors were handed to him, he gave them to his critic and asked her to trim the the streamers to her liking. And after she clipped them off near the collar, he said, Are you sure they're they're all right now? Yes, she said, "Uh, that's much better. And then Wesley said, I'd like to have those scissors for a moment. I'm sure you wouldn't mind if I also gave you a bit of correction. I must tell you, madam, that your tongue is an offense to me. It's too long. Please stick it out and let me trim some off. (laughs) I'd have loved to have seen that. (laughs) In all seriousness, there's a warning here for all of us. Don't deceive yourself. When you speak, you're telling the truth about your heart. I mean, the tongue is not the only indicator of true spirituality, but it certainly is one of the most reliable. And if the tongue is not controlled by God, it's a good indicator that the heart is not either. And there's an application here for all of us, especially in the day and age we live in. You know, in a day of cell phones, email, text messaging, uh, Twitter, blogs, you know, Facebook, etc., etc., we need to be careful because we've created an entire culture that says if you have a thought, then you just ought to immediately share it with the rest of the world. But loved ones, don't buy into to that line of thinking. Ecclesiastes 5.2 Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Proverbs 29.11 A fool, listen to this, a fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. Proverbs 10.19, when words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. I actually like the way the King James has that verse. It says, in a multitude of words, sin is not lacking. Loved ones, we need to keep a tight rein on our tongues. As Paul said, we're to let our speech always be gracious, you know, seasoned with salt. We're to speak in a way that that shows that our faith is real, that our heart has been transformed by God, and that it belongs to Him. So let me ask you this morning how is your religion? Based on what we've learned, is it true or is it worthless? What does your tongue indicate about the condition of your religion? You know, every one of us need to pray with David, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. And remember that one of the marks of a false religious profession is a tongue that is lacking in restraint. Those who are truly hearers and doers of the word control their tongue. And now in verse 27, James tells us that those who are are truly hearers and doers of the word show compassion to those in need and manifest personal purity. Look at verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. The words pure and undefiled are synonyms. The first emphasizes cleanliness. The second means freedom from contamination. So James is not speaking of what may seem to be best to us or best to the world or even best to other believers, but what is best in the sight of our God and Father. The genuineness of anyone's religion is not determined by his or her own qualifications or standards, but rather by God's. And God says it consists of visiting orphans and widows. And this is not uh, giving us a definitive Uh, or in saying this, James is not giving us a definitive, comprehensive description of true religion. Instead, he is illustrating the kind of thing he expects to see when a man's religion is real, when, when his Christianity is genuine. And James is using orphans and widows probably because they were the most helpless, the most needy in Jewish society. The word translated to visit means much more than just dropping by for a chat. It carries the idea of caring for others, exercising oversight on their behalf, and and of helping them in whatever way is needed. No qualifications, no exceptions. It's used frequently in the New Testament of God's visiting His people in order to help, strengthen, and encourage them. And James is using orphans and widows as representative of all those who are in need. And so this principle applies to anyone in need. And James, is uh, his point is that outward religious activities, no matter how perfectly observed and, and appropriately reverent, they are worthless if there is no concern for those in need. Martin Luther said, a religion that gives nothing, costs nothing, and suffers nothing is worth nothing. True Christianity is manifested from a pure and loving heart by the way believers speak and act, but it's also manifested by how they love and care for those who are in need. We don't want to be like the lawyer who was speaking to Jesus. And he said, well, who is my neighbor? He didn't really want to help anybody. Who's your neighbor? Look around. Look around. It applies to anyone in need. True Christianity is manifested from a pure and loving heart by the way believers speak and act and also by how they love and care for those who are in need. You see, it's not enough to be a knower. You know, to know. We're so proud about how much we know. When in reality, uh, we all know, beginning with myself, not near as much as we think we do. It's not enough to be knowers. James is telling us, which James is writing into the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit, God is telling us we must be doers. It's not enough to be knowers, we must be doers. We must love in action. Love is to be the central and most visible manifestation of salvation. Jesus said it was our love for one another that would show the world that we really were his disciples. The Apostle John said in First John three seventeen and 18, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And as John makes abundantly clear, love for God cannot be separated from love for others, especially for fellow believers, and most especially for those who are in affliction. And this word affliction speaks of suffering that is brought about by the pressure of circumstances. By the pressure of circumstances. And James says that true religion will show itself in that kind of situation by the Christian helping the person in need, doing all that he can to alleviate the suffering and ease the pressure. Now think of the people you know who are in some kind of distress brought about by the pressure of circumstances. And then ask yourself, are you doing all you could or all that you should, you know, to to help them? I mean, no amount of attendance at church services will absolve you or me of our responsibility of proving our faith by our works in helping those in need. The professed Christian who does not show such love and compassion for those in need has reason to doubt that he is born again. Now look. Every Christian falls short of the Lord's standards. Like Paul, we find ourselves doing the things we know we're wrong and not doing the things we know are right. And even the most faithful and loving believer doesn't always show as much compassion as he should. You know, love his fellow believers as he should or love God as he should. Again, James, So again, James is not speaking about perfection, but rather of the basic desire and direction of our lives. And if that's right, then our deepest desire will be to love and care for others and to confess our selfishness to the Lord when we do not. As one commentator said, the genuine Christian cannot be happy or content when he fails to show compassion for others. It is not our perfection that proves our salvation, but rather our hating our imperfections and seeking with God's help and power to correct them. A truly redeemed heart will look for and reach out to others and seek to meet their need no matter what the cost. I mean, my goodness, everybody wants to go back to the early church, you know, the Acts 2 church. But the Acts 2 church, those believers uh, were selling their possessions. They didn't have abundance to give out of. They were actually selling their possessions to meet the needs of other believers. Thirdly, James says, those who are truly hearers and doers of the word manifest personal purity. Look back at verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphan and widows in their affliction, and he says, to keep oneself unstained from the world. This speaks of a regular, continuous action. In other words, keeping oneself unstained by the world is a continual obligation of Christians, no exception. No qualifications. The word unstained can also be translated unspotted, unsoiled, or unpolluted. It depicts a condition of personal purity that remains unblemished from contact with the surrounding pollution. And the word world refers to the world system with its ungodly systems of philosophy. Morals, values, and practices, it's its immorality, it's dishonesty, it's greed, it's selfishness, it's violence, it's envy, it's arrogance, it's blasphemy, it's cruelty, it's materialism, it's obsession with pleasure, and above all, it's careless or calculated rejection of God. It's the present world system as dominated by and under the sway of the evil one. And to be unstained from the world is to maintain both personal integrity and moral purity. It's to refuse to allow the world to set the standards for our beliefs and our conduct. In Philippians 2.15, Paul challenged us to be blameless and innocent children of God in the midst of of a crooked and twisted or perverse generation. John warned, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Love of God and love of the world and the things of the world are totally incompatible. They are mutually exclusive. But understand, and it's important to understand, as one commentator noted, the phrase, the things of the world does not pertain to such things as participating in business, being involved in social activities, or buying and using the material necessities of life. No, it's the overriding love of and allegiance to such things that are ungodly and come between men and God. I mean, we live in a polluting world. A world that is filled with hedonism, relativism, and humanism. And our world today resembles the one Paul described in Romans chapter 1 that God has given over to depravity, degradation, and disgrace. And it can pollute our thinking and our speaking and our doing. And many who profess to be Christians give evidence of that pollution. They've set aside the clear teachings of the Word of God because they don't want to be out of step with what the world says. And the authority for these people is not the Bible. Rather, it's the latest opinion poll. Many who profess Christ have been polluted in their speaking. They, they talk just like everyone else. And they would rather risk the, uh, run the risk of offending God than sound different from the world. And many who imagine themselves to be Christians have polluted behavior. They live their lives exactly the same way as as those who make no profession of faith at all. In fact, you can't even tell them apart from the world. You see, there was a time when Christians understood that, Christians and the church understood that that, that the Word of God calls us to be different from the world. And there was a time when the church believed that, that that difference was the only hope they had to attract unbelievers. But now, unbelievably, things have, have flip flop, and, and many in the church have been saying this for uh, a long time, that they're saying just the opposite. I mean, the church is trying to attract the world by being just like the world not realizing that if Christianity is not different, then there's absolutely no need for it. If we're no different from the world, if we have nothing to offer them different from what they already have, then what's the point? We cannot hope to influence the world for Christ if we allow it to influence us in our thoughts, in our words, and our deeds. And later in this letter, James is going to have more to say about controlling the tongue and and meeting the needs of others, but he's also going to have more to say on this matter of being separated from the world. And here's one of his most telling and biting statements about the world in James 4, verse 4. In fact, you could turn over there real quick if you want. Here's one of James' very telling and biting statements about the world. Look what he says. You adulterous people. And he's speaking to the church. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself, what? Enemy of God. Godly religion. That is, biblical Christianity. is a matter of a heart that is transformed on the inside, that results in holy obedience to God's Word on the outside, reflected among other ways by keeping a tight rein on our tongue, by our selfless, sacrificial love and compassion in meeting the needs of others, and by our personal purity our uncompromising moral and spiritual standard in regard to the world. I mean, we've, we've said a lot today. I've gone longer than usual. So in closing, let me ask you, and I'm not, I'm not asking you about your spouse or your friend or your neighbor or the person you're sitting next to, I'm asking you because James is speaking to you and to me. He's speaking to each one of us as individuals. Are you a doer of the word or are you a hearer only, deceiving yourself? Let me think about it for a moment. What does your vocabulary tell you about your purity? What do your topics of conversation tell you about the depth of your love? What does the quantity of your words tell you about your ability and willingness to listen to others and to God? You know, what comes out of your mouth is an extension of what lives in your heart. James says that such speech is evidence of our faith. So ask yourself, how well am I doing in this area? I mean, none of us is perfect. But be honest. Are you making an effort to to gain control? A true faith will result in in a compassionate Christian. You know, are you active in your faith? You know, do you look for opportunities to serve those around you or are you so focused on yourself that you don't even notice the needs of others? Are you willing to be inconvenienced to help and and love others or are you only willing to serve God when it fits into your schedule or sounds like fun? If the answer to these questions is no, then maybe it's time to get serious and truly begin serving the Lord. True faith results in Christians who desire to remain pure. You know, we could liken sin to a disease, and like any disease, it takes constant effort to prevent ourselves from getting infected. What are you doing to prevent the world from impacting the way that you live? If you have difficulty answering that question, there's a good chance you've already been infected. And maybe you're already compromising the way you live. But if so, it's not too late. I mean, you can begin fighting off the infection by confessing your sin and becoming a doer of the word. Yeah, that's not the easy route. But it's the only route. It's the only effective treatment there is. I mean, James has shown us what true faith looks like. So look at your own life and see where you stand. I mean, no believer perfectly displays what James has called for, yet the bent uh, of their lives uh, has been changed by Christ so that inwardly they seek to bridle their tongue, outwardly they seek to show compassion to others, and they seek to maintain purity in the midst of this crooked and perverse world. Does this aptly describe your life as a Christian? And James would say, your religion is pure and undefiled before God the Father. But if you've been pretending, and there's a lot of pretenders. Unfortunately, there are a lot of pretenders. They're banking on the fact that they do all of these religious things, and even then they don't do them well. But they're banking on the fact they do these religious things or tying it to some experience they had years ago. But in reality, their life is no different than the world. So if you've been pretending, it's time to stop. It's time to stop and and to get serious about your faith. It's time to turn to Christ and seek His mercy and grace. You know, stop pretending. Ask Him to change you and to help you. Stop pretending so that you might actually live your life for Him not just be a pretender, not just be a a person who does religious things, but that you might actually be a hearer and a doer of the word. That you might actually live for him. And I pray that each one of you is a doer of the word and not a hearer only, deceiving yourself. You see, you can fool me, you can fool the world, You can fool your spouse. You can even fool yourself. But at the end of the day and at the end of your life, you cannot fool God because he knows the truth. Let's stand and pray. of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel, Reading, Palisadro, we hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the Word. If you have any remaining questions or comments, please call us at 530 547 4400. That's 530 547 4400. Or write to us at PO Box 837, Palisadro, California 96073. You can also email us through the website at ccredding.com. Thank you for listening.